All right, everybody, it is nine o'clock. It's about time for us to begin our Bible class. <clears throat> we are studying, as you may know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We've been looking at this since the beginning of last month. It's a three-month class uh, examining not just the actual specific moment uh, and occasion of Jesus' death, and then burial and resurrection that followed, but looking at the whole of it from kind of a big picture idea, which is where we started the class. Um, we began this class, and just to give you kind of a, a catch-up, an overview of the class thus far, we began this class at the beginning of last month by looking at what Jesus said throughout his ministry about his death. It didn't sneak up on him. It was something he knew was coming, and he talked about it repeatedly. After almost every big event, as we might term it, in his ministry, my master mentions it, and he says, to essentially, and thus I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and rise again the third day. He clued them in on the whole picture, and yet still they were shocked uh, when they uh, found him dead, and they were even more shocked when they found him alive again. Throughout his ministry, he talked about it. And then after that, we looked at the book of Isaiah, chapters 52 and 53. 53, everyone always thinks of. That's the great crucifixion, suffering servant chapter. But we looked at 52 as well, because that's the one where Isaiah says, your Savior, God's redemptive work is like God rolling up his sleeves, making bare his holy arm to get to work to do the work to save humanity. And then in 53, Isaiah laments. He says, well, who is this arm revealed to? Who are you rolling up your sleeves for? It's this wicked, evil people that have abandoned you. They're sheep gone astray. And that's the point. He's, he's not dying for the good. He's dying for the bad. He's dying for everyone. And so we looked at that. We also went back to Jesus in Gethsemane. From Galilee, we went to Gethsemane. And we noticed seven observations that uh, we could take away from that fateful prayer. That very famous, uh, let this cup pass prayer. And then from there, we went from Gethsemane to Gabbatha. And we noticed the wounds, the abuse, the physical abuse, yes. The psychological abuse, yes. The emotional abuse, yes. And every facet of a human being's potential to suffer Jesus suffered before he ever found hand pressed against wood. At Gabbatha, he was beaten and abused and dehumanized, as we noticed on that occasion. And then for the past couple of weeks, two weeks ago plus today, uh, we've been looking at Jesus at Golgotha, noticing famously those seven famous statements that he made. And we made that very cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason, the, the idea that the last words of a person uh, are supposed to be the most significant. They wouldn't have said those words if they were their last words unless they wanted them to mean something. So my master on the cross had seven final things to say, and he said them to a variety of people. He said them to enemies. He said them to loved ones. He said them to God himself, and I think in a bigger way, he said them to us who will be reading about them and learning and believing it 2,000 years removed. He had a lot to say in these seven statements, and so we've been looking at them. Two weeks ago, we consider the very first thing, the very first statement to come out of my Lord's mouth. The first words he would say are not words of discomfort. They're not words of self-loathing. You won't hear that at all in this. They're not words of rejection or hatred or, or vehement anger against those who did this. No, it's directed to or about those who did this, but it's not anger that comes out of his mouth. It's mercy. He says, Father, forgive them. We know not what they do. I'm not going to reteach that because we studied it two weeks ago, but just to, just to punch on that real quick, the significance behind those two statements. Father, forgive them on the one side, and on the other side, they know not what they do. It's true, they didn't know what they were doing. 
if they had fully comprehended what they were doing, especially, especially the Jews who conspired it in the first place, if they fully appreciated what they were doing, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.8, they wouldn't have done it in the first place. If even the Romans could have perfectly understood the mind of God and the work and the perfection of the Messiah, they wouldn't have put him to death because they would have, in that case, understood who he was. They did not know what they did. And yet my, fa- my master still says to the Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The only one on this whole scene, including us reading it after the fact, and we have the benefit of hindsight and inspired record, the only one of, of us in all of humanity who perfectly and fully understood what was really going on and in a complete way was the man himself who was enduring it. He understood exactly what was happening, why it was happening, what all the planning was for, what all the prophecies meant, and he was the one who says, Father, forgive them. The one who understood perfectly how unjust and wrong this murder was, was the only one who spoke with mercy on his lips. Is that not remarkable? Is that not amazing, Grace? The only one who wanted them forgiven. Because, I, I mean, I couldn't have said those words. I won't speak for you. The only one who had the gumption to say, Father, forgive them, was the one who had the least reason to say it, but who took that on himself to be so forgiving. <clears throat> Last week, we considered Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. And again, not to reteach the whole thing, but here's your takeaway from that. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1, and then quoted by the Lord. Here's your big takeaway. In a moment of agony and distress, my master asks a question. The one who has a perfect mind, who spends half his ministry doing nothing more than asking questions and answering them, taking in the questions he's asked and answering them without a second's hesitation. Ask a question, and as old preachers have said, forever, whenever God asks the question, He's not doing it because he doesn't know the answer. He's doing it because he wants us to consider the question. Adam, where are you, for example? Judas, why have you come? For a friend, why have you come? For another. So here, my master asks the question, what is the answer? What's really the answer on his mind? He's asking, why is this happening to me? What's the answer? Me. I'm the reason why this is happening to him. And no offense, but so are you. Because there's not a one of us here who is innocent. Every one of us here is guilty. Why did my master even have to talk about his death in Galilee? Why did my master even have to pray about his death in Gethsemane? Why did my master even have to be abused and beaten before his death at Gabbatha? Why is he asking why on Golgotha's hill? Because I chose to sin. Because Charles chose to sin. Because Tommy chose to sin. Because Bruce McClarty chose to sin. Because... Adolf Hitler and Mohandas Gandhi chose to sin. Name somebody. Osama bin Laden chose to sin. George W. Bush chose to sin. Every American soldier who's died in every American war chose to sin, and he died for them. Every person killed by every American soldier in every American war chose to sin, and he died for them. And when you see it in that way, when you view humanity through that lens, through those rose the color of blood, colored glasses, you realize the call of the gospel isn't just to the people I like. It's to the people who've done me wrong because the gospel was first commissioned by someone to whom we all have done wrong. And he died for us. Why is this happening? I'm why. It's happening. That's why. Well, let's move on. There are five more sayings left to consider. Open your Bibles to the next one, John 19, 25. 
John 19, 25. Again, we're not doing these in order. We're going to eventually catch back on the track to get in order, but last week was all concerned with just one, so we had to do it out of order. But here's the next one he says, John 19, 25. John writes, There stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. So you have a plurality of women gathered at the feet of the crucified one. You have his mother, Mary. She bore witness to the death of a son. I can't appreciate that like she could. You have his mother's sister. She bore witness to the death of a nephew. I can't appreciate that either. You have Mary, the wife of Cleophas, who is also called Mary, the mother of the apostle James, the one we call the less. Simon also, Thaddeus. That she bore witness to the death of a mentor. Not only her own mentor, but her son being his apostle mentor. And then there was Mary Magdalene, out of whom a year prior he cast seven demons. She bore witness to the death of a miracle man. Now, I've seen Jesus perform miracles by reading it in Scripture. I've seen it through the eye of faith. Mary Magdalene not only saw it with physical eyes, she experienced it. She lived through a miracle done to her by Jesus. Now, she has to watch as this person who could do such an amazing, miraculous thing die, looking helpless. He who had helped her so much, she saw him through eyes that I simply can't fathom. But on this occasion, my master has eyes for but one of these women. John says he looks at his mother. Look at John 19, 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, we presume that to be John the writer, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Looking at Mary, pivoting to John, woman, this is now your son. In other words, this is now your caretaker. This is now the one who will take care of you. As was customary, not only in their culture, but in our culture, it should be in every culture, that when your parents are your parents who took care of you when you were helpless and they grow older and unable to take care of themselves, it is up for us to take care of our parents when they become helpless. That's not just culture, that's just common decency. But now here is Mary who took care of the babe Jesus, not seeing him as the Messiah to come, not seeing him as God in the flesh, but just seeing him as her child, took care of her child when he was hungry in the middle of the night, when his diapers got dirty, proverbially speaking. She took care of him, but he's not going to be around to take care of her. Yes, he'll rise, but then he'll really rise. He'll go up. He won't be around to take care of her into old age. And so here, Jesus and Mary have to be involved in this very uncomfortable circumstance, this very tragic uh, event that none of us would ever want to be in. And that is a parent is going to have to bury a child. And we're going to study that next week. Mary is going to be involved in the burial process of Jesus. Yeah, it's going to be fine in three days, but she's still going to, you tell that to a mother. You tell her she's going to go through this, but it'll be fine in three days. It's going to be a tough three days. She's going to have to bury her child. Thankfully, Jesus, being God, can take steps to to prepare her for that and to take care of her for that. And so he looks to the mother and he says, John is not going to be your child. And he looks to John and he says, Mary is not going to be your mother. Have Have you ever seen... I'm sure you have, especially if you're a parent and you've had a small child in particular and something happens. It could be emotional or physical. You could stub your toe or you could, you know, lose a loved one. And you're a parent and you break down and you cry, which is a human expression of emotion. Nothing wrong with crying. As an adult, you cry and you happen to cry in front of your child. I remember, this is funny and it shouldn't be, I shouldn't be making jokes under this solemn circumstances, but I'll tell it anyway. 
My father had a bad habit of always blaming everything on his children. Uh, Let me explain. So my mother was crying one time. I think she had lost a cousin. I have like a thousand cousins. She lost a cousin. So she was upset about that, and she was crying. And I was a little child. Now, have you ever watched a child when he sees his mommy cry? A child doesn't know how to process it. Sometimes the children will laugh because they don't know how to emotionally process what they're seeing when they see their parent crying. It's always supposed to be the opposite. I cry, mommy takes care of me. When a child sees his mommy crying, a child doesn't know how to process it. Usually they end up crying too without even knowing why. So I started crying because I saw my mom crying. And I went to my dad and said, why is mommy crying? And he said, because you're a sister and you always fight all the time. You got to quit crying because you you're making your mother cry. Well, that's what a child does, can't process it, can't fully appreciate it, can't understand it. Why is my mommy crying? Jesus has a mind that fully understands all things. He's a divine mind. Jesus is also the child of a mother. He is also still a person, a human being. And I imagine the same feeling of this is not right stirred up within him when he saw his mother weeping at his bloodied feet. And that despite all that he was enduring, all the physical, emotional, psychological pain the cross was bringing upon him, he still felt this childlike compulsion to do something to take care of his mother. And so he steps in and he says, John... Verse 27 of John 19, this is now your mother. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And then John adds commentary. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. He made sure throughout all of his agony to take care of somebody else. And if that doesn't sum up Jesus, absolutely nothing in your Bible does. I have the next point we're going to consider. Um, I want to build up to it. I'll tell you what it is, and then we'll build up to it. It is today you'll be with me in paradise. Let's build up to that. I had a sermon that I preached a long time ago. I'm not going to preach it to you now, but I'll just summarize it, all right? It was called um, Three Responses to the Cross. Because, you know, you give an invitation, you always say, what's your response? Give a response. Come respond as we stand and sing. Well, there were three biblical responses to the cross here on the occasion of the cross. First, there was the Roman response. What did the Romans do vis-a-vis the cross? Well, they nailed the cross together. They condemned the man to die on it. They stripped the man, they beat the man, they nailed the man. And when you see the Romans in the whole crucifixion scene, you don't see a picture of compassion, not even a hint of it. You don't see a picture of tenderness, not even a hint of it. When Jesus is about to be uh, lifted up, they offer him vinegar mingled with gall in mockery, according to Luke. Later he'll, he'll drink vinegar, but we're not there yet. At first they offer him vinegar to mock him. It's a pain sedative. Oh, look at this weekly and give him a sedative. And Jesus refuses to consume it. So that's the Roman response. Cold, unfeeling, callous, bloodthirsty. But then there's the Jewish response. What's the Jewish response to the cross? Well, when Pilate inscribed over Jesus' head the accusation, as was customary, if you're passing by and you want to see who's this guy, why did he die? Above his head is going to be what he did. He died for the crime of insurrection against the empire. He died for the crime of murder, whatever. What was the actual crime in which Jesus had inscribed over his head? What was his actual crime? In Roman history, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, with Nazareth was killed because of what? It says on his uh, placard above his head, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Why did they kill him? Because he was king of the Jews. And what was the Jewish response to that? Oh, no, don't say he was the king of the Jews. He's not our king. Blasphemy. They said, no, say that he said he was our king. Like, let's not even give him that shred of dignity. Let's not even give him that slightest bit of humanity. Let's take that away too. Let's just say that he said it. I don't want it said that we think he's our king. Oh, he's not our king. And then as he is there dying for them, what is the Jewish response? But to mock him, 
to wag their fingers and their fists and their heads at him and to uh, verbally accost him and to say, he saved others, why can't he save himself? I thought he could destroy the temple and build it in three days. Let's see him build himself now. Let's, he calls to God. Let's see if God will deliver him. Pure, callous, hate-filled mockery. Even more mockery than what the Romans would do. And they were savage pagans. Here are Jews, supposed to be a people of God. Even if Jesus was guilty, still didn't deserve that. And that's what they gave him. He saved others. Let's see him save himself. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. The idea of a sacrifice is lost on them. A willing one. So you have the Roman response. You have the Jewish response. The third one is the criminal's response. And this requires a change. A change comes about over the course of the crucifixion scene. Because at first it says, <clears throat> Luke writes, that the criminals mocked him the same as the Jews. They cast the same in his teeth. I think is how the King James puts it. They, they joined in on the accusations and they threw the proverbial dirt in his face and in his mouth. So they cast the same in his teeth. They mocked him just as much as everyone else was. But over the course of the crucifixion, one of them had a change of heart. And one of them says, as the other one is still uh, lambasting him, the other one says, don't you fear God, seeing as we are in the same condemnation. And then Jesus, he turns to Jesus and he says, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, curious to me how this common criminal would know, number one, that Jesus was innocent. Right? This man has done nothing amiss, he says of Jesus. And number two, that he would know about Jesus' kingdom that he had been preaching about for three and a half years. Tells me this person knew what was going on in Judea for the past time of Jesus' ministry. Understood the Messiah's message. And somewhere along the way had chosen not to follow the Messiah, but had taken into a life of crime and now was suffering righteously for it. Was suffering justly for his crime. And he recognizes that, that dichotomy, that I am suffering justly, but this man is not suffering justly. And he still appeals to this person for mercy. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he recognizes his innocence. He recognizes his kingdom. And he recognizes his authority to do something for him who is, uh, who is justly dying for his crime. Give me something I don't deserve. Is that not the appeal we all make to the cross? I deserve to die. Give me what I don't deserve. Give me mercy. And so that's what he asks of Jesus. And then Jesus makes his famous statement. Today, you will be with me. That's the Lord's response to all this. I'm thinking of others. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Here's a guy who has obviously heard Jesus preach. He knows about the kingdom. He's obviously observed Jesus' life. He knows that he's innocent. He's well informed. Now, what does that matter? It helps me to know who this person is. This person is obviously a Jew. He is obviously someone who speaks of fearing God not the gods, like some pagan Roman would say, who speaks of the Messiah's kingdom, who is captured in Jerusalem. He's obviously a Jew. So when Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, remember that Jesus is speaking to a fellow Jew, a fellow person who therefore was born into the Abrahamic covenant, born into a relationship with God. It's hard for us to fathom because we have to be born again into one. It's different for us. When I was born, I was born in Arkansan. I was born a citizen of the United States of America, born a citizen of Arkansas, united by the other 49, of the family Martin, 
I was born into that family. That's it. And I receive all the rights and privileges thereof as a citizen of Arkansas. I was born into it. But I wasn't born into receiving all the rights and privileges of being a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. I had to be born again. I had to put myself to death, bury it, and rise to walk a new life with Jesus in him, in his kingdom. Well, this guy didn't have to do that. He was born into the Abrahamic covenant. So once he was circumcised the eighth day, all the rights and privileges that go to Abraham go to Abraham's descendants. This guy is made in the shade, except for the fact that he chose to break the promises of God. He chose not to keep his end of the deal. As God said, you people will be my people. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. You got to follow my commandments. You got to follow my ways. This guy chose not to follow the ways of God, and now he's dying for it. But like any Jew, like David in Psalm 51, like any good Israelite, Abrahamic covenant-born person, he can appeal to God and ask for forgiveness. And so here is this Jew, this Abrahamic covenant Jew, asking the Messiah to forgive him in so many words. Remember me when you go into the Messiah's kingdom. And here is God as he forgave David, forgiving him, God in the flesh, doing so. I say all that because you're going to have somebody who's going to say, Somebody is going to say to you, well, can't you just be saved like the thief on the cross? I mean, you don't need baptism. Just be saved like the thief on the cross. Well, do you want me to get some board and nails? Oh, no, no, that's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. Well, what do you mean? I mean, I want to be saved without baptism. Well, David didn't have to get baptized. Why are you bringing up this guy's baptism or lack thereof? If he even wasn't baptized, he might have been baptized by John. We don't know. It doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant because David wasn't commanded to be baptized. David sinned with Bathsheba. David offered a prayer of repentance, and David was forgiven. That's the beauty that that guy got to enjoy, born of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the same beauty that this guy gets to enjoy, born in the same covenant. It's not a beauty I get to enjoy. I get something far better as long as I metaphorically kill myself and rise to walk in a new life by burying my sins in the watery grave and rising. See, when I do that, I am born again into a new, new covenant. One with better promises, not to tease the whole book of Hebrews over again. So it is apples and oranges, me and this guy on the cross. But if you want a connection between us, it's this. A person who didn't deserve salvation, who deserved the death he was about to get, was spared at the last moment. Still died. Actions still have consequences. He still dies. But he is remembered by his master and coming to the kingdom with him. And that's the same thing that we get to enjoy as well. All of us who are born again. That is to say, three more to go. Look at John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, says, I thirst. After all things were finished, and I think there's a whole sermon in just that phrase, all the prophecy, all the working of God, all the planning, all the providential preparing, everything that culminates in Golgotha now comes to a head. And everything is done. All really that's left for Jesus to do is fulfill one last little prophecy. And then he's fulfilled everything he needs to fulfill. And then he can just die and fulfill that. It sounds almost flippant to say it that way. I don't mean it to come out so callously. But that's, that's it. He's almost done with this whole ordeal. But to fulfill that scripture, he utters these words. And they are the only words of discomfort. The only words that express any kind of physical discomfort in the whole affair. Go all the way back to Galilee. And Jesus is just talking about his death. And you don't see him say, oh, my stomach, it's just in knots as they think about what I'm going to go through. It may have been, but he doesn't let on. You go to Gethsemane, and he pours out emotional discomfort, certainly. 
and he pours out great physical anguish. You see him go through, but he doesn't ever complain about his physical anguish as we are so quick to do. We often just disregard emotional pain and we just whine about physical pain when the other one is often far more worse on people. My Lord never once complains about his physical discomfort. And he went through everything a person could endure at Gabbatha. Stripped and beaten and his back turned to confetti. Not a word of physical discomfort. And now here, near the end of the whole crucifixion journey, he utters two little words, one phrase. And he even says it then just because he must fulfill the scripture. I thirst. Listen, the man's going through a lot more than just thirst. But that's all that he says. I thirst. David predicted the Messiah with thirst, Psalm 69, 21. And Jesus, as he had been doing throughout the whole crucifixion scene, keeps fulfilling the prophecies of the Psalms related to it. And so he says it. Look at the follow-up, John 19, 29. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar. That is to say, nearby, there was this a uh, container full of vinegar. And they filled a sponge with the vinegar, <coughs> excuse me, and put it on a hyssop and put it up to his mouth. So you have these prophetic words of David that are going to be fulfilled by him saying the words, but the response of the Romans is just to do something about it. And it's, it's interesting because Luke makes a specific point to say when the first time they offered him vinegar, they did so mockingly. But he doesn't say that here. Now, I don't want to read into it, but if, if I was just viewing it and looking at the way people react and the way people act, I think it's entirely possible that somebody maybe felt a twinge of compassion. I'm not going to put that past them entirely. That somebody felt the need to do something to help this man in all his agony. The least we can do is accommodate the least amount of complaining we've ever heard from a man being murdered on a cross. So they soaked the sponge with vinegar and they lifted up to his parched lips and he drinks it. Hyssop stalks grew about three feet tall, more or less. So we're just estimating here. But through that, we can kind of get some kind of an idea as to how high up exactly was Jesus on the cross. This is kind of stuff that half the people don't even care about. But I'm always interested in facts and figures like that. You have a six-foot man, roughly, we'll say. Again, estimation. And you have a three-foot um, stalk. And if you raise it up over your head, you have about a foot of clearance over your head that you're raising it up to. And so you have, it has to go up to his lips, but then you have to also accommodate another foot or so for the inscription. You're looking at about 10 feet up, more or less, to do the math. I'm not going to walk you through the whole process. I'm not going to show my work like I did in math school. But you would have about 10 feet high, high enough to have a good vantage point. I mean, 10 feet doesn't sound like a lot. I'm six foot even. It's only four more feet. But if you actually stand 10 feet up, like on top of a ladder and look down, it's very disorienting. Now imagine being 10 feet up and your feet are nailed together and your hands are nailed and your body is bent and you're asphyxiating and you're choking and suffocating and you're writhing in pain, the whole canvas is surrounding you. And what does Jesus see? What does Jesus visualize? Ten feet raised up above everyone on this hill, so seeing out even more, is nothing but sin and sinners. Some of whom sinners like Mary are followers, but still he's dying for their sin. Some of whom like the Romans and the chief priests have no remorse, no regret in their hearts, and some never will. He's still dying for them. So he sees this whole scene stretched out in front of him, and then up comes this stalk soaked with this vinegar, and he takes it where he didn't take it before because he wanted his wits about him before. He wanted a clear mind before. He wanted to think what he was going through before, but it's almost over now. So now he can drink. To fulfill the prophecy, yes, but as a human, to take that little bit of reprieve. Which takes us to the next one. 
John 19, 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, but we're not done yet. There's another one you can insert that isn't mentioned by John. As I say, earlier in the scene, they offered him vinegar and he didn't take it. Now they offer him vinegar and he takes it because he's near the end. And to show us he's near the end, he says the words, basically, it's over. He says the words, it's done. And I think as preachers have preached on this, probably for 2,000 years, there's a lot in those three little words. More than just to say, 33 and a half years or whatever is finally almost finished. It's more than just to say, so many hours of physical, emotional, and psychological agony is almost done. There's a lot more going on than just a few hours, than just a few weeks, or than even just a few years, or even 30 years. There's a lot more in that phrase than just this window of time is almost done. I think in the mind of Jesus, who was there in the beginning, who made all things, who created Adam from dust, who created Eve from his side, who watched as they succumbed to temptation, who walked in the garden with them, and then could not find them after they were ashamed of their sin, and finally found them and inquired what had happened, knowing, as he always does, what had happened, and then making that prophetic statement to the devil, that I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it's going to bruise your head and you're going to bruise his heel, that God speaks that prophecy and that God now comes in the flesh and lives through that prophecy, lives and fulfills that prophecy, dying, the snake biting his heel, but crushing the snake's head in the process. You have thousands of years of building up to that moment. And finally, it is probably the most relieving statement that he makes. It is the, just this, this release. It is finished. The devil thought he won, and the devil loses. He spoke to God about his enemies. Think about this for a second. He spoke to God first about his enemies, Luke 23, 34. He spoke to his mother and disciple about her care. So big picture, small picture. He spoke to a criminal about salvation, big picture. He spoke to God about his suffering, small picture. He spoke to the Romans about the prophecies, I thirst. He speaks here. To whom? Like everyone before this, if I asked you, who's he talking to? You could tell me because it's very clear. Oh, there he's talking to the thief. Well, there he's talking to God. Well, there he's talking to John. Who's he talking to here? It is finished. Is he talking to the Romans? What do they care? As far as they're concerned, it's nowhere near done. You're going to hang here for hours. You might hang here for days. And then a little bit later, they're going to come and they're going to say, we got to get him down because, you know, it's, it's, this, is a, this is a holiday. We can't have a dead body on the holiday. Oh, goodness me, let's not forsake the Sabbath. Let's not do something ceremonially unholy while you're murdering the Messiah. That's all that you care about. So yeah, in a little bit, they're going to break the legs. But right now in that moment, the Romans are thinking, this is nowhere near done. But you've got a long way to go on that cross. Is he speaking into the Jews? The words would be gibberish to them. It's not finished. You're going to suffer, and you deserve to suffer because you're a blasphemer. You're a wicked, evil person, and we're giving you what you deserve. They're not thinking it's finished. Who's he talking to? God? Me? You? No one? Himself? It's just a powerful phrase that he utters. It is finished. What does it mean? Well, his life of ministry is finished. His life itself is finished. His agony is almost finished, which means now his agony is done. Now he can live again. 
His redemptive work is almost finished, which means I can live again. His time as the great sacrifice for all sin, past, present, future, is almost finished. All of the divine prophecies and predictions and plannings and providential workings, as I say, have come to a climax here on Golgotha's Hill. It is finished. I want to read you a quote. Ever since Jimmy Allen passed, we've been referencing Alex and I. It just comes up, uh, Jimmy Allen. When I first became a Christian in the year 2000, I was given two books. Well, I was given one before I became a Christian. Why I'm a member of the Church of Christ, Leroy Brownlow. David Riley at Mars Hill in Valonia gave me that book. Read it for a week, obeyed the gospel. And then he gave me another book right after, because I already had a Bible, so he gave me something else. It was a book of sermons by Jimmy Allen. And I, at the time, I wasn't even thinking about becoming a preacher. That, that would come a year later. But it was given to me just so I could just study and learn, you know, in, in a concise outline kind of format. And I'll never forget, one of those sermons was on the crucifixion of Jesus. And it was on the seven sayings of the cross. And probably by osmosis, some of what I'm saying here is lifted from there. I haven't read the book in forever. But I remember, and I wrote down um, a long time ago, and I've always used it, this quote by Jimmy Allen as he talks about this phrase, it is finished. And here's what he says. It is finished. The scheme, and I cannot do Jimmy Allen justice. I won't even try. The man had so much power and passion. The scheme of redemption was complete. The old law with its ceremony, animal sacrifices, tithings, permeance of sin, fulfilled. The purchase price for the church, paid. The sealing of the new law, accomplished. The battle with Satan, fought and won. And I love that last line. Just to elaborate on it, think about this now. This is the final battle between the devil and God, if you want to even call it a battle. I mean, God, God thumped him before he even knew he was hit. But if you want to see from Satan's perspective, it's a fight. It's a battle. And this is the final battle. It's the climactic fight. It's the only battle in human history where the hero loses and, the, and wins, where the villain kills the hero and loses. This is the fight that all fights have been building to. See it that way. Don't see it like you're in a fight with the devil. You're not in a fight. You're in a victory. And the sore loser is just chucking rocks at you while he retreats. You have already won. Now, here in this timeline, you haven't won yet. You're going to win in three days. So hold on. Because eventually you're going to hear the words, another three little words, he is risen. And that's when you'll know you won. But 2,000 years later, we look back and we say, we've won. The, the, the battle is over. It is finished. He is finished. He lost. David went to fight Goliath, a battle that to outsiders seemed impossible. He had five stones in his, in, on his person. After the battle was over, he had not a scratch on him. He won. Jesus fights the devil. He walks away with five mortal wounds, two in his hands, two in his feet, one in his side, not to mention his head, not to mention his back, not to mention his heart, his mind, I mean. Five wounds. He wins. The devil loses. It is finished. It should be noted that when the, the high priest would inspect the lamb on Passover uh, and declare it fit and righteous, and we've seen those parallels, I see no fault in this lamb, the priest would say, just as Pilate said, I see no fault in this man. So after the whole ceremony was over and the lamb was sacrificed, the high priest would come out and he would utter three words, it is finished. On Yom Kippur, he would come out and he would offer three words, it is finished. Maybe that's what Jesus was saying. Maybe that's it. Maybe as the high priest offering himself as the sin sacrifice, he was taking on that role and saying those three magical words. It is finished. Either way, he says it. And the last thing he says, he cries with a loud voice. That's all John gives us. But 
Luke tells us, into your hands I commend my spirit. Who knows the reference Jesus is making here? Did anybody know this is a quotation from the Psalms? As much of this has been. This is a quote from the Psalms. Does anybody know the reference? It's Psalm 31, verse 5. Father, in your hands I commend my spirit. It's almost verbatim. Did you know that in Jewish tradition, at least in Jesus' day, that it was customary for Jewish boys to be taught to pray by their mothers, not their fathers. That mothers would, would teach their children how to pray to God. Because you have to teach children these things. They can learn by observation, but sometimes direct teaching is needed. And a mother would teach the children how to pray. And when a, when a Jewish child is taught how to pray to God, they weren't taught the words like, um, oh, how's that nursery rhyme go? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. It's very similar, but they weren't taught something like that. They weren't taught some sing-songy word. Just about anything a Jewish boy was taught or a Jewish girl was taught is going to be lifted from the Scriptures. And they're going to teach them and imprint upon them the Word of God. And sure enough, a Jewish child will be taught by his mother how to pray using the quotation of David, among others, Psalm 31.5. Okay, you're going to pillow your head. You close your eyes. But I'm scared. Don't be scared. Here's what you're going to say. You're going to close your eyes. You're going to say to God, into your hands I commend my spirit. But I'm going to fall asleep, and I'm not going to know what's going to happen. What if I die in the middle of the night? That's why you're going to say this prayer, little Jesus. You're going to say, into your hands, God, I commend my spirit. I give over to you my life. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Right? That's, that's maybe the origin of the phrase. It's very similar. So you're going to just bow your head and you're going to say to God, whatever happens through the night when I'm not conscious and I don't know and I can't control it, I put it in the hands of the God who controls everything. Now here is my master who has endured 33 years of living amongst sin, who has endured three years, roughly we say 33 years, who has endured three years of ministry, teaching sinners, being rejected. I mean, at one time he had thousands of followers, thousands of people hearing his words as he broke bread with them and fish and fed them and more. But then as he gets more specific and as he gets more direct, and when he says things like, you must not just eat fish and bread that I give you, you must eat my body and blood. And he watches as they just abandoned him in droves. And he turns and poignantly says to his disciples, will you also go away? John 6. And, I, and Peter lifts his spirits. Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Indicating to me that Peter, who sometimes gets it flat wrong, understood what body and blood meant when Jesus said that. We're not going to cannibalize you. We're going to completely take you into our lives. That's the message he's been trying to preach for three years. I say trying. He succeeded in a lot of ways. But a lot of people rejected him. A lot of people turned away from him. And he had to watch them go like the rich young ruler. He had to watch them walk away sadly. Three years he's preached. Three years he has taught. Three years he has convicted and convinced a few. And stirred up hatred and bloodthirst in many more. And now it all culminates and him being beaten and savaged and laid up on a cross, nailed there, bent to suffer, asphyxiate, and eventually die. And he has said his final words as he gasps for air. And he has said, Father, forgive them. He said, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He has said, Why have you forsaken me? He has said, I thirst. 
He has said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He has said, it is finished. What more do we need of him? How much more could we take from him? We have been so horrible to him. For 30 years of his life, this God-man who came to dwell among this evil people, us, sheep gone astray, there is nothing else we could take from him. He's given us everything. So what does he say? There's nothing left to do but to die. And so his final words before he finally dies are a bedtime prayer that he learned from his mom. Is that not just the most tender thing you can imagine? That after all of that, and considering all the divine complications, and not complications, but uh, you know, concept of this whole redemptive process, the whole picture in his mind, where he is in his mind in this last moment is a little boy scared to go asleep at night. Because... As, my, as we talked about in a sermon a while back, when he was standing there at the transfiguration, and Moses was on one side and Elijah was on the other, and Luke tells us they spoke about his upcoming death, and it hits us, of course, God, God has never died. And now he becomes a man, and he's going to do something he's never done before. He's going to die. What is that like? Moses, you've died. I'm going to die and go ascend into heaven. Elijah, you've done that. He's talking about that in the transfiguration. What is it like to die? So that stirs up in him. And he utters this little prayer. Hearing the voice of his mother when he was seven years old. Father, into your hands, I give you my spirit. And then he bowed his head. And he gave up the ghost. How many people at the moment Jesus died knew about it. This is how I'm going to close. How many people, Jesus gives up the ghost right then and there. A lot happens after, we'll get next week. In that moment, how many people on planet earth knew about it? Well, that small crowd gathered around it knew about it. Word would soon spread around Jerusalem. But how many people in Rome knew about it? How many people in Spain? How many people far away in Japan knew that some guy named Jesus from Nazareth this man who called himself a prophet and a king was put on a cross and killed. Not very many. Not very many. A man died in Jerusalem in 33 AD. People die every day. Happens all the time. People die. But this, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end. This is the end, what? Of the beginning. Because what happens next is going to rock the world. Oh, a few people know about it now, but you just wait. Soon everybody's going to hear that a man died and a man rose again. Next week, we're going to go away from the cross. Well, we're going to talk about the burial of Jesus. We're going to talk about the time frame of his death, the, the ceremony involved in it, and look at it from that angle. And then we'll go to the resurrection. A lot of crazy things happen when Jesus rose. That's what's coming up in the last month of this class. That's all I have for you this morning. Thank you guys very much.